All right, let's do this. Hi, everybody. My name is Luke Thomas. It is, uh, let's see, it is the 2nd of November, 2023. It is 3.03 p.m. East Coast time. This is episode 178 of my live chat. Whoops. Of my live chat. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, here come the notifications. There we are. Hi, everyone. Boy, uh, <laughs> it's going to be a busy 2024. It's going to be a busy 2024. There's a lot going on. So first of all, we're still in the wake of this Francis Ngannou boxing earthquake. Then yesterday, it was revealed that the Ninth Circuit, um, the federal court, denied the defendant's appeal in Lee versus Zufa, which means the UFC. They denied their appeal. Uh, there was some question about whether or not that was going to be accepted, or at least you know heard in that court, uh, and they denied it. They denied it. So trial has been set for April. Oh my God. Oh my God. That is a huge, huge deal. And now, just moments ago, Bloody Elbow did some detective work uh, to publish not a comprehensive list of some of the big, well, yeah, not a comprehensive list of the biggest purses in UFC history, but probably close to nearly all of them. They have two of the payouts from Brock Lesnar. They have all of Ronda Rousey's. They have many of Conor McGregor's, although not really past the Alvarez contest. Uh, no, because they have some of Nate, so that's not true. But they don't have the one versus Habib, which was probably pretty substantial. They got some from John Jones. GSP, Michael Bisping, and some other ones as well. Uh, if you want to take a look at them for what the payouts are, now you're going to look at some of those numbers, and you might be like, "Damn, some of these are pretty good." Yeah, again, you know, they're not paying them fifty bucks. They're not. Uh, it's not power slap. Uh, the question, of course, is in the broader debate: Is it what it could be? And the answer, of course, is no, it's not. Uh, but pretty interesting information, just the same. So we'll get to any of that plus anything else you like. We'll go for about an hour on the free questions. And then of course, if you are a member, which you can become right here, people ask me, Luke, I use an iPhone. I can't use that to become a member. Well, you can, but you're going to have to go through your Chrome browser or you're going to have to do it on your straight up desktop where you can just get on there and go to this link below, which of course is going to be youtube.com slash Luke Thomas slash join. You can see a big join button when you go right there. All right? Very good. Uh, we have a number of things to get to. So without further ado, you know how this goes. Let's get this party started, shall we? Okay. And we're back. So thank you so much for joining me. I greatly appreciate it. You know, thumbs up, all that good stuff. Subscribe, all that good stuff. That part's free. You know, if you don't want to contribute at the end, certainly no judgment from me. I appreciate it when you do. But if you don't, you just want to be here for free. I'm just glad you're here. But hey, if you are going to stick around for free, help me out. Give me a like on this video, uh, a comment, and uh, subscribe. Yeah? All right. Very good. Oop, got a message here from Othello. Let me make sure everything is hunky-dory. Yes, it is. Okay. Very good. Whoo! So let's get this process started by doing it this way. Here we go. All right. First question, Luke, with UFC 295 coming up, what do you see Yuri Prochka's biggest advantages and opportunities being in his matchup against Pereira, specifically in striking? Alex is the favorite, and for good reason, in terms of technical proficiency. His elite, uh, his beyond elite kickboxing. I'm not sure what's beyond elite. Since that's, since that's, excuse me, since that is the highest level, but whatever. 
blows uh, Yuri striking out of the water. That's true. Uh, besides being an incredible athlete in his own right and embracing his chaotic style, I'm wondering what tactics would work against Pereira. How would you think size will play into this? Yuri is like Adesanya, the same height and reach, but with much more mass, obviously. Yuri is the largest competitor he's faced in MMA and could look slightly smaller. I mean, I have not done the extensive tape study yet for this particular fight. I realize it's coming up. I, usually I do it the weekend before. Um, listen, how did how did uh, Izzy catch him, right? He caught him between punches because you'll notice that Pereira kind of holds his hands right about here, which if you think about it, there's any kind of stance you have is going to have positive, it's going to have negatives, it's going to have things that it promotes, things that it doesn't promote, and you have to decide what's a trade-off based on your individual preferences, what you're going up against, you know, all these things you have to weigh. So one of the great things about Pedata Styles, he's got this great left hook and he kind of stands not super bladed, he's pretty square, but he holds his hands right about here. Why is that relevant? Because it makes reaching the target much shorter. Right? It doesn't take him. He doesn't have to wind up and then really come over the top. He can just kind of extend out and go, and he can, or he can whip that left hook very quickly around the corner. Right, so there's a lot of it. It really affords him great use of that left hook, and I think the results speak for themselves. On the other hand, what you saw against Izzy was he doesn't bring. It's not like he's here. Right, he's not here. He's not bringing it back. He, he doesn't do any of that. He kind of minds the distance, measures it, keeps his hands here, and goes. So like. Question is like, is there a lot of opportunity to hit him? Yes, you have to put yourself in danger to do it. But he's not—he's offensively very powerful. He's—he is careful. He is making a series of choices that I do think you know optimally puts him in a better position to do good offense than have bad defense. But he doesn't have super strong defense. He's not defensively very very oriented. He's—he's he's not reckless. That's not the point. But he's not. That's not the leading part of his game. The leading part of his game is, of course, the offense. Um, he's not—he's not really shelled up behind anything. So he's hittable. He's super hittable. Izzy had to time him between punches. I don't think that's going to be the case. But for a guy like Yuri, who's unpredictable, who will step across and spin back, you know, and all, I mean, just any number of things he'll do, and the shot selection and the trajectory is weird. Yeah, like any of those. Any of those would be a problem. Uh, the question is to what extent the leg kicking slows Prohachka down. What answer he has for the leg kicking? Is the answer a striking answer? Is it a wrestling answer? That's kind of a big one. And then is he going to get himself backed up or is he going to back up Alex? That's the most interesting one too. So the reason you would favor Alex is because I think he might be doing the backing up unless there's heavy wrestling from Yuri. So that we'll have to see. But if something that's not really in play, I think the leg kicks and everything else are going to beat him up real bad. Um... And so the question is, like, what he has an answer for there. But, dude, the guy will pull a rabbit out of his hat because he's putting himself at risk to land low-percentage shots that, if they land, they're devastating. And, you know, the Dominic Reyes fight is, like, a perfect example of that. Um, I, I didn't think he was necessarily going to be in trouble for stepping across and then coming behind with the elbow. Uh, but it was, like, super high reward to do that. And the kind of range and setup he had to do to get that going, it, you know, he had to engage in firefights, basically. So... You know, that, that's kind of where I come down in all of this. It's like strike for strike, minute for minute. Pereira, sh if it's on the feet, Pereira should be a lot better. Uh, but he is hittable. He is hittable. But we, we know it. Oh, let me take this off. Damn. Hang on. I didn't mean to leave that up. My bad. There we go. Much better.
All right. Good question. Here we go. We'll pull this down so oops, so you can see it. There we go. Luke, what was your biggest technical takeaway from Fury and Ganu? Mine was either Francis's ability to navigate the clinch, yes. Or shout out Jack Slack, Fury's inability to deal with the Southpaw look from Francis. Yeah. Didn't do a big tape study on this one either, but uh, it have to, for me it was the clinch for sure. You know, it, again, the framing he did on the inside and then going to the body and sometimes uppercutting underneath. But more to the point, you go back to what Fury does. Fury extends the jab, he turns the hand over, and then he comes around the corner like this to grab the head. He did it all the time against Deontay, but Deontay was what? You know, 215-ish or something, 217-ish, 220-ish, I think around something like that. He wasn't very big. Francis, number one, 272. Big difference there, right? 50 pounds or more. And then on top of it is nimble there, like framing, moving his feet, turning, using push-pull action while moving your feet, throwing while using push-pull action while moving your feet. Like, you need an experienced MMA fighter to do something like that. And Errol Spence, by the way, again, this is why it kills me that after Bud beat him, everyone was like, yeah, Errol's kind of a bum. Shut the fuck up. No, he's not. No, he's not. He is a very, very, very good wrestler in the clinch, wrestler in the clinch, uh, in boxing. But he has a lot of boxing tools about, you know, certain high-framed elbows and, and, you know, and moving the head around for different stance guys. Like he would push, he would step to the outside of Ugas and then use his head to push Ugas over his head, excuse me, over his leg. And so Ugas would trip a lot. Like if you go back and you watch that fight, a lot of early times when you see him in the clinch, Ugas is trying to catch his balance because it's actually Errol Spence getting in the inside and then moving him over. He's clever too, but with this kind of thing where you're almost where you're where you're pulling out of position by recentering yourself in the middle of the ring, framing and then throwing underneath, you know that's that's an MMA clinch, man. That's an MMA clinch. Like to me, it looked like he conferred big time advantage. And if you guys haven't seen it, I did an interview with Dewey Cooper, who is. Uh, didn't just pick up with Francis at Extreme Couture, has been with him since he came to the United States. And um, his coach, Dewey Cooper, was saying that they knew two things they had to take away from Fury. They had to take away the jab. They had to take away the jab. And that they had to win on the inside. And I, you know, the jab, I thought they did a pretty good job of neutralizing. I thought that was obviously pretty interesting. The, the left he landed was over the top of Fury's cross. So that wasn't a, a jab. Uh, issue per se but nevertheless I thought he effectively or you know reasonably effectively neutralized and I thought he just outright won in the clinch it was the clinch spot for me that was very very interesting and also like something that that Cooper said that really caught my attention was that they didn't want Francis to use maximum power what they wanted him to do was just be very particular with his precision and his timing pick the best shot you can pick and the power will take care of itself and I think that's true I actually feel like that's a great read by them. So they did a lot of things really right that just, you know, I wish I could tell you that I saw it coming. I most certainly did not. Unbelievable. Now, let me ask you guys about this. We'll just put a poll up on this one. If we can, put a poll up. Um, very simply, very simply. Will Tyson Fury and Francis Ngannou rematch in boxing in 2024, right? Because we're all kind of wondering what big fights await Francis you do think the rematch is big he's not going to fight Fury's not going to fight Usyk until I think when did they say February something like that so we've got some time after that is that going to be 
a fight you see in 2024, the rematch. Take the poll. We'll look at some of the results here a little bit later. All right, let's get back to some of these questions. Uh, okay. Here we go. Big insights from the interview with Kareem Zidane. What can we expect going forward with the with influence on UFC and the relationship in general with Saudi Arabia with plans to host non-pay-per-views there to expect more cards year-round? How will that affect the roster and scheduling? This, this part's kind of interesting. I mean, you, you would imagine at first it will only be a handful or less dates in all of the Middle East um, all year long, I, I would suspect. You're going to get, it seems like, at least one big pay-per-view, if not two, in Abu Dhabi. I think we got... Uh, we got one big one this year, I believe, right? Maybe I'm missing one, but it was certainly the last 294 was a big one. There may have been one bigger at the beginning of the year. Um, you know, they have, a lot of, they have a lot of mouths they're trying to feed, a lot of markets they're trying to promote, right? They got to go to Australia. They got to go to China. They got to go to not so much Japan anymore, but, you know, back to Brazil, which they're doing this weekend. They got to go to parts of Europe. So it's going to keep them in rotation in ways where whatever place you're th- talking about outside of the Apex or Estados Unidos there's going to be a limited handful of dates. And as you know, they're going to be fight nights at first, not much more than that. I do suspect you'll probably see a Saudi pay-per-view with UFC, if not in 2024, no later than 2025. Um, it doesn't appear like you know they have any ethical hang-ups about it. We obviously know about how great that sovereign wealth fund is. I think the latest estimate I saw was $800 billion they're playing with in that particular account. So that's a lot of money. Um, how many though? Again, it's not going to be that many numerically. It's only going to be again for the next year or two or something like that. The foreseeable future, a handful of calendar dates or less per year. Uh, but you're asking, what kind of with their influence um, plans to host? Not a, how do we affect roster and scheduling? You will see more fighters signed from that area to some extent. You might see developmental programming built around the Middle East. And remember, the Middle East has, you know, in certain ways, a decorated relationship to both, like, uh, Olympic weightlifting, uh, international wrestling. You know, it's not like these are countries, in certain cases, yes, they are, but, like, you know, there's a lot of powerhouses in some of those programs, too. Um, You know, you've got good athletes from that region. If you can reasonably recruit them and train them, you might see a performance institute built over there. Honestly, right? If they're going to build the Mexican market, they might want to build the Saudi market and, you know, what that might mean for recruiting fighters from the general area who could participate. So there's a lot of interesting factors there. I guess we'll have to see. But one thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, people inside MMA, and I think it was John Nash who made this point, they're, you know, and to an extent boxing as well, but you're seeing in MMA, they want to cozy up to the Saudis because they don't want, they'd rather be co-opted than have to go head to head with them. And, but if they're co-opted, they still have some say over how the process goes. So it's this trade-off where we're going to relent to the idea that you guys are inevitable, but if we co-opt, we will have at least more of an ability to be a driving force in any of these directions that get taken. Um, and again, as long as the UFC contracts are the way they are, this is why I keep telling people, like, with the PFL event, I mean, I realize it is deeply unrealistic and unlikely to happen. I, I, I fully get the unlikeliness of it. But I still think that you should advocate on things that are on your interest, whether or not they are likely or, you know, you don't have to change what you like by virtue of its likeliness. You you should change what you like based on if you like it or not, not on its likelihood per se. Um, I forgot the fuck where I was going with that. I don't know what I was going with that. That's an interesting little fuck up I just had. All right. I don't know. I forgot where I was going with that. Beyond that, I don't know if there's any big takeaways to have at the moment. 
Um, they lost a hundred mil on that Fury and Ganu fight. I mean, I don't. That's just an estimate. But they lost. They they lost tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars on that contest. I, and I guess they just don't give a shit, you know. Uh, UFC is not going to be willing to do that, but. Also, the way they're, again, this is what I was sort of getting at, sorry. The way their contracts work, unless something happens, Ali Act, lawsuit prevails, whatever, as long as the contracts are as they are, there's not going to be the turnover necessary to make any other organization viable. It simply would not be possible. Um, so that's why it doesn't matter. It, it, it does matter how much money the Saudis have, but at the same time, what matters more is the contracts the UFC employs and uses. All right. Let's see this. If the UFC could have known how well Francis would perform, do you think their position in negotiations with him and his team would have changed? Probably somewhat. Yes. Yes. I mean, at the end of the day, like, what is the UFC preserving? Right? I mean, the UFC is... Um, in letting Francis go, right? They tried to resign him. He didn't want to resign, so they, he, he walked, right? We all know the story. But, like, in not resigning him under his terms in the way that he had wanted, and you, you might say, again, some of those things are unrealistic. Fine, they're unrealistic. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, you, you make the demands that you feel like you're entitled to if you really believe that, right? Um, I think it would have made them go really, uh, you know, maybe another $5 million for a fight. Maybe it would have given them a more lucrative contract overall if they had the foresight to know something like this, which, again, very few people did. But at the same time, you got to remember, like, what they're trying to preserve is a certain way of doing business that is like, you know, the mosquito in the amber from Jurassic Park. And what I mean by that is, what they're trying to do is preserving a way of doing business that locks in the state that they're in. Now, of course, if people sour on the UFC product, anything can happen. But the point I'm trying to make is between the contracts and the industry control, it maintains their superior position at all times, even if in certain very small, but in this case, very impactful ways, there can be the occasional person who's a big star, who gets away, who overperforms, and the system, the criticism of the system is, how did you let that guy go basically for free, right? Um, that's true. That's a weakness of the system. However, do I need to tell you about the strengths of the system? In just about every other case, it works the opposite way. It keeps the person locked in. It keeps them in the system. It keeps them working with UFC. And again, we're talking about high earning. You know, the, the, in this case, Francis was the champion when he left right? All that kind of stuff. Um, in those cases, it keeps the vast majority of those guys under lock and key. So do they lose out on Francis? They do. That is a weakness of the system. They couldn't find a way to work with him. On the other hand, the purity of the system that they have uh, and the way in which their contracts work and how you know it's 20% or less revenue locked in that is maintained and if the choice is changing the system and working with Francis or not changing the system and not working with Francis, you, the decision that they had made was they would rather keep the system as is. 
That's the way that they want to do it. That's what they're preserving. That's what all of this is about. So it's you can very easily point to what they did as a weakness of their system, but that's that's a trade off that they're willing to make. A lot of people are like, you know, they should have just changed things and worked with. In BC's idea, I think, is the most interesting one, which was that they should have had a Zufa boxing thing, let the guys do it, and then really began to make some extra money. But the problem is when you do that, right? It just puts everything quite visible like well how come they're making x amount over there but not over here like we got with maymac but it was a one-off and then you're done they've not revisited it since 2017 right they didn't want to go back at all um in fact i i heard at a previous place i worked i mean this is what happens in a lot of places right like one person kind of like finagles the system and then the people in charge, rather than learning their lesson about what this might do, they just kind of double down on the things that made that person want to leave to begin with. I heard at a place I used to work, they did that because I had a deal where I was able to go and do a bunch of extra stuff on the side. And of course, you know, I'm like, well, you know, you, we don't, I don't, you know, I don't have to go work for these people on the side. You can just do this for me. And every time the answer was no. So I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to go do this with other people. And then eventually you leave that company turns out that that company that I left, that shall go unnamed, they have apparently changed the rules so that anyone who is employed with them can't do what I used to do. So, you know, instead of learning the lesson about, <laughs> you know, maybe there's a certain way in which to have employee relations, they just decided, nah, fuck that. We're just going to make it harder for everybody else. And I suspect um, most corporations will do the same. Most corporations will do the same. So... That's that. That's that's why it's so costly to them. That's what they're preserving. They're preserving the strength of what maintains their market position. And you, you know, on some level, you can understand that. I think, not that you have to agree with it, or you might, but you you can understand why they they're making the calculations that they're making. All right, this is a good question. I really don't know how to answer it. Which is, since Francis has shown incredible performance against Fury, how do you think you do against the heavyweight? kickboxing champion kickboxing looks like he can become the first athlete to get a heavyweight belt in three different sports i mean i don't want to make the same error that i just made in boxing be like oh he has no chance right don't want to do that don't want to do that at all i mean i think a couple things i mean he might be able to perform pretty well could he beat the very best in kickboxing i'm sure he might be able to get some wins i don't think he'd be able to march in there and just beat everyone today i mean again i'm going to remind you i know folks think he won but technically he he did lose that bout. Tyson Fury did technically beat him. So let's be, you know, somewhat cognizant of that fact. I, I think what I would say is when, you, when you're an athlete who's as much of a quick learner and as powerful and freaky in the way that Francis is, maybe he could go in and beat some, some very good kickboxing guys. He's got the kind of power. He's, you know, familiar with leg kicking, head kicking. I mean, he's not, the kicking game is not altogether foreign to him really in that way so I suspect he could perform ably I don't know exactly how far that would take him he might surprise some guys along the way I don't know if he could in 10 fights beat the 10 best heavyweight guys I think some of those guys are going to win um, along the way but Francis is a freak I mean I'm going to remind you of one more thing Dewey Cooper said which really 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 needs to be noted here which he goes dude if Francis was American you wouldn't know about him as a fighter you'd know about him as like you know, tight end for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers or whatever, you know, six foot five. I mean, 270, he's a little big for tight end, but maybe they can get him down to 240. But you get what I'm saying. He, he wouldn't be an MMA fighter. He wouldn't be a boxer. He'd be in the NFL. But because he's not, and now he's looking for an athletic opportunity, it was fight sports that he found his way. But the guys like him from this country, they go just do another sport. 
they would never play this one. And so we were lucky to have him. And so for those athletic advantages, dude, like look at what it confers. He can do a lot. So I don't want to disrespect the firmament of elite heavyweight kickboxing such that it exists. I'm not here to say he and Rico Verhoeven have trained together before. So I know that he's he's obviously gotten in some work. I, I don't want to I don't want to really undermine Francis's chances. I think he could do well, but again, I I, I you you would largely bet on the best heavyweight kickboxers to win, largely, not exclusively, but largely. But I mean, Francis is the guy who breaks all the rules, isn't he? He's ridiculous. Interesting question here. Uh True or false? Other than the achievement of handing Fury his first loss, which he didn't, Francis Ngannou winning a one-point split decision wouldn't have earned him much more than what the current result of losing a one-point split decision already has. You can use any interpretation of the word earned that you deem fit in this context, such as money and praise. No, I do think it would have been a much bigger deal. It would have been a much bigger deal. The reason why is because Fury is the WBC champ, and this fight, they think they wanted to pass it off as an ex- exhibition. We talked about this on MK. It eventually got sanctioned at the very last... It got sanctioned at like the last day. like Or maybe, maybe like Saturday morning or something, it got sanctioned, right? Something absurd. And, but the belt was not on the line. I mean, if... I grant that if uh, Nganu had knocked him spark out, that would have been real trouble for boxing in a lot of different ways. We didn't get that. Okay. Um, But a split decision win still would have thrown a lot of things into chaos because the belt had not been on the line. And now you're like, well, shit, is Francis supposed to be the heavyweight champion of the fucking world? You know, because he would have been the guy who won, but not without the belt. It would have forced a rematch. It would have completely... I don't know what it would have done to the Usyk fight. It might have put that one off permanently. It would have already it would have badly damaged interest in that fight, which it probably already did, but even worse. But I'm just pointing out the fact that Tyson had the belt and was able to win even though the belt wasn't on the line means you didn't have to deal with the Pandora's box of questions. Right? So I get what you're saying that it would have been an incrementally better version than what he got, which was the biggest moral victory I think I've ever seen. In that sense, correct. But because of Fury's championship status, it would have really done things. And by, by the way, Pride used to do this as well. Pride had so who was it? Was it was Takanori Gomi, who was the Pride? I think it was their version of lightweight, which was like one sixty. He was the champion, and then he fought Marcus Aurelio, who beat him, who subbed him out, and then but that was a non-title affair, and then they had a rematch, and I think Gomi won the rematch, something like that. But it was this weird situation where it was like Gomi lost to another dude, but the title just wasn't on the line for that fight. And then they had to go back and do it again. So it definitely would have caused more chaos. But in terms of like how the public sees Francis, yeah, maybe not a huge difference necessarily. Not a huge one. All right, good question. To what extent are perceived rigged decisions in boxing the result of actual manipulation as opposed to being influenced by the inherent nature of boxing or the intricacies of the scoring system? It appears that in the realm of MMA, aside from a casual observer, conspiratorial allegations about judges or Dana White manipulating decisions for a fighter are not taken seriously by the majority, whereas in boxing, the claims appear to be taken more seriously. Mind you, this is coming from a casual boxing viewer. I don't know the history. So let me give you just a real brief 
uh, situation. I, which sanctioning body is it? Is it WBA? There's an ongoing court case now. It may not be the WBA. I think it is. So please double check this. God, BC and I were talking about this a few months ago. There's an ongoing court case where it could be WBA or BO. I forget which one it is. Um, there's an ongoing court case where someone uh, created like an advisory board for one of the ju- for one of the um, sanctioning bodies to make sure that you know they had proper views of like various talent in Puerto Rico and other places, and there was money going from that board to the sanctioning body, and that some of the guys on the board were managers of dudes who ultimately got picked and sanctioned for their fights. In other words, were there just managers fucking using this like totally artificial legal entity as a way to whitewash just paying the sanctioning body to rank their guys so they got bigger fights than bigger purses? And like all of this is being uncovered. There's like a manager being sued. Again, please look this up. The boxing scene has done a boxing scene.com has done a fair amount of coverage. Like, dude, there's massive corruption. And that's just what's being, you know, and this is only public because of a lawsuit. Like, uh, but for this, I don't, I'm not sure that the public would have known. So there's just massive corruption in boxing. It's a lot of old institutions, it's a lot of sketch people, it's a lot of people who don't give a shit about doing it the right way skepticism about whether boxing is on the up and up is warranted in ways that I don't think um, you have the exact same kinds of concerns that you would get in MMA. And MMA scoring is more difficult. There's a debate about how we should be doing it. And because the commissions have, you know, in large part, although they're getting better recently, but in large part have decided to have zero dialogue with the audience, um, it seems like they may, they make bad decisions and then do so in secrecy. So... There are some differences there, but yes, boxing has a long, 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 long history of um, sanctioning bodies to say nothing. I mean, uh, uh, New York boxing in the 80s was absolutely run by the mob. I mean, you just have a completely different level of intertwine, intertwinement, intertwining with little organized crime, payoff schemes. I mean, you you name it, you name it. So uh, that's really where some of that comes from. Now, it is also the case, and everyone will be like, oh, f- look, Nganu won. Listen, if you got an Nganu scorecard, I can understand how you got there. I would disagree, but I can understand how you got there. Certainly, it's certainly he made it, like, stupidly competitive. It was ridiculous how good Francis did, right? He, he performed so well. Um, but can you come up with a 95-94 scorecard for Fury being fair? I think you can. I think you can. And there there is some of this, too, where folks can be affected by commentary or the crowd. You go back to that fight with, this is MMA, but Volk and Makachev won, which was in Australia. Dude, if Volk smiled, the audience went fucking ballistic. You know? These things have effect on people. But everything gets in the wash, and if you're a boxing fan, you just you get sick of it because corruption is 1 billion percent real. It's absolutely real. It's been real for a long time. It's changed. It hasn't been the same kind of corruption, but it's there. It's there times 10. The fight game is gross, guys. <laughs> the fight game is gross. Like, it's full of gross people who do shit that you would be, like, unimaginable. I mean, imagine one day, like, this was this is how naive I was getting into combat sports, like, as a career. Like, when I first got in there, it's like moving into a neighborhood. You're like, wow, the neighbors seem nice. A little intense, but they seem nice, you know? 
we can make this work. And then four years later, you find out one of your neighbors was like, you know, shooting neighborhood dogs and eating them. And then the other one was just setting houses on fire for fun. You're like, oh, right. This is a, this neighborhood's full of fucking sketch balls. I didn't realize that. And that, that's, that, that's, that's been my working situation through combat sports. It's like over time, you're like, yeah, these people are out of their fucking mind. I didn't realize that. That's um, okay. All right. So you'll you'll just see people and you'll work with them and then three years later they're like I'm sorry you did what now? Okay, the fight game is gross. Fight game is super 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 gross. I will say this man, I don't know what's going to happen with this fighter lawsuit. I really don't. Uh, nobody does. They might settle. Then in fact I think their chances of settling just skyrocketed. I'm not sure if either party really wants to go through with a lawsuit or the uh, with a trial at this point. Um, but what I would say is if all that does come undone and there will be winners and losers in that, to be clear, um, and some of the winners might be people you don't like. And some of the losers might be people you do like, we should also be very clear about that. But for sure, some of the losers are going to be the people downstream in terms of how they benefit from where it all started. And if all of that comes undone, and then you go down the chain of custody of how those dollars follow, and you get down to the people who are, you know, managers of fighters or the like, that when their business is impacted by this, which I think if it goes through in that way, it could, in fact, for sure will be, they're going to be real mad. They're going to be real mad. They're going to be real angry. Um, and they're going to say nasty things about the people who advocated for those kinds of changes, again, if these are all brought to reality. I want, I want to be very clear that you should know that. They're going to be super angry. They're going to be super vocal about it. Um, and, but it's because their scams are up, you know. Like, they're, the way in which they had enjoyed the industry would be significantly altering. And that's just, you know, that's just a squealing pig at that point. So, if in a couple of years you start seeing that kind of thing, the folks downstream from all the changes that could happen, remember this conversation. Remember this moment of dialogue that we're having here i'm telling you now that's there you're gonna see real pissed off people to do real pissed off people things i think that is an inevitability if 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 everything moves in that direction which by the way is still a huge if but just think about it there's a lot of people like people like to think that it's the ufc that's the only entity benefiting from this market arrangement and of course they are the biggest benefit the uh you know benefitor benefitee um they're taking the largest amounts of gains, but there are people that are aligned with them all in different kinds of ways that their participation in this machine is contingent upon the machine working the way that it does. But what if that machine no longer works the way that it does? There's going to be a lot of people downstream that are going to be pissed off when those changes get made. So just remember that if it happens. Maybe, no, maybe we never even get there. But if we do, there's going to be a lot of people who've been eating who are not going to be eating the same way, and uh, you're going to hear their hunger pains, for sure. All right. Uh, look, you often say that New York City is the best city in the world. For someone who's never been, what makes NYC so great to compare to other cities? Well, again, it's just partly, you know, individual preference. So, um, you know, I've been to I've been to some of the great cities of the world, and they're all pretty great. I mean, you know, London is hard to beat. Paris is hard to beat. Tokyo, I mean, these are, these are, these are world-class cities, you know, and then there's a whole range of other world-class cities that, um, based on what you like or dislike are going to be a part of that list. For me, New York City is interesting 
uh, for a couple of reasons. I think that the cross section of humanity in New York, I've not quite seen anywhere else um, in all different kinds of ways. New York thrusts together all of these very, very, very different populations. And the mix that comes out is deeply unusual. Like, um, you know, you, you have other cities where, for example, like you don't need English in Miami, right? You don't. You don't need English in Miami. You can be just fine with Spanish your whole life there. You don't need it. Um, New York's not quite like that, but there are parts of New York where you definitely and absolutely don't need English. But at the same time, there's tons of, they're like, you know, little Ukraine, little Thailand. People know about little Italy, but like these vast reams of all of these different kinds of populations living in all of these areas. It's just this eclectic collection of humanity that I've not quite seen, personally, I've not quite seen anywhere else. Also, the other thing you have to imagine about New York City is, and this is true and it makes it hard to live there, but like in many ways, not 100% true, but in many ways, like the best of everything is there. I mean, if you just think about somebody and what they're good at, if they're a good chef, dude, some, I mean, many of the world's best chefs are going to be their artist, someone on Wall Street. In my industry, if you're in broadcasting, you know, like the very best of what, anybody can do is almost always represented in New York City. So you have these like weird tiered system where it's this home of like celebrity and um, more than that, this collection of, you know, elite performers, industry over industry over industry mixed with this like completely crazy mix of humanity mixed with this urban environment where you have this giant park in the middle in Manhattan that you have this incredible amount of walking space, you have infrastructure where you don't have to drive, you know, if the New York City subway can be you know, germ-infested and quite gross at times. Um, relative to D.C., it has much better crime rate, you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, it's m better crime rate than most red states, quite frankly. Like, dude, New York City is fucking awesome. 60,000 bars and restaurants, people from all walks of life, people who are extremely high achievers in every world that you can imagine, like, you know, again, pe maybe people find that in other in other great cities. They They probably do, but... I've not been able to see quite that same dynamic in any other city except New York. New York is gritty. It is tough. It is beautiful. It is, it is, um, it is artsy. It is eclectic. It is, uh, you know, Jerry Seinfeld waxes poetic about New York. You should believe everything he says. I, I, I couldn't endorse it more. People who talk shit about New York. Yeah, dude, New York's got problems like any place has problems. One of the biggest ones is it's very, very expensive. I fucking hate that about New York, right? It is very, very expensive. But, dude, if you've got the money to comfortably live there, why wouldn't you? I mean, it's just, I don't even get it. I, don't, I couldn't, I mean, I guess some people like the solace of the wilderness or the beach. Okay, all right. But if you had the money to live comfortably anywhere, it's, it, yeah, you can, you, you know where to find me. All right. Oh, yeah, here we go. Since no one asked about it formally, let's just get to it here. Apparently, the UFC got denied some kind of appeal for the ongoing lawsuit. What does that mean for the rest of the case? Yeah, let me just make this as basic as I possibly can. Basic as I possibly can. Like most defendants in a case, they're going to try and find different ways to have the case thrown out, derailed, slowed down, reconsidered. And these are all things that are afforded to any defendant, right? Assuming they have the legal and financial manpower, but you know, they're not doing anything that they're not requesting the court to look at. These are all avenues that are allowed to take. And one of the ones they were taking was to appeal, um, the current, uh, 
court that's seeing it, uh, which is the case, the, the federal court in uh, district court anyway in um, Las Vegas in Nevada, and have a higher court, the Ninth Circuit, take a look at it. And what's interesting is that you know the Ninth Circuit had like Trump appointees on it. It had some Clinton appointees too, but it had some Trump appointees on it. And so the UFC probably surmised, and there was all, here's the other part too. The way in which the plaintiffs made their case was, and this gets really complicated, but they were using a measurement called wage share versus wage level. It's a different way of measuring and whether you satisfy certain demands of how pay should be structured in a healthy, competitive environment. And Hal Singer is the guy who was the economist for the plaintiffs. You can see him on Twitter. He tweets all the time. Um, Hal Singer was the guy, and he was, or he was arguing that wage share, while a novel use in cases like this, was a better way to represent the industry. And that is a fairly novel legal theory as it relates to antitrust. So the UFC thought, hmm, what if we kick it to a higher court and ask them to take a look at this particular th- method of evaluating f- the fighter compensation? And I have to tell you, that's a pretty good strategy, actually. That, that was probably, if I was a attorney for the UFC, I probably would have thought that's a great idea too. I think, you know, the, the, the plaintiffs were taking a bit of a risk in not a novel legal theory, but a uh, unusual way in which these kinds of cases, antitrust cases, uh, typically go. Ninth Circuit said, we're not even going to really bother with this. They didn't really weigh in on it. They just said, yeah, we're not, you know, the request for appeal is denied and done so you're asking what the practical effect is the practical effect is that's it basically basically that's it so you're either going to go to trial or you're going to settle and if it goes to trial i mean yes let's let's think about it one is the plaintiffs could fall flat on their face get nothing in the end waste 10 years of their life to get absolutely turned away penniless that is 1000% on the table on the other hand if you're the UFC you are also risking a jury coming down awarding the plaintiffs everything they want and then some where you're now having to pay out billions upon billions upon billions of dollars that's a real thing your contracts are all going to get changed your company will no longer be recognizable within a few years after that based on what it was to what it could be I mean, let's just be real about it. Like, what is on the table? I'm not saying the likeliest outcome because it's very hard to predict, but existential change is on the table. Literally, the UFC as you understand it, right? And Rob Macy, who runs the MMAFA, has been explicit about this. You know, however powerful, was it a $10 billion organization or more at this point? I mean, he's talking explicitly like in a healthier competitive environment, and I don't know if they, they will get this way, but that you know, you look at the size of how big Matchroom is. You look at how the big, how big the size of something like PFL or Golden Boy. These operations are all much smaller, and it would take the UFC down to a size much closer to that if the plaintiffs all get their way. And again, that is how likely that is. The jury might find a little bit for them. They could find, you know, some here, some there. It could be any number of different things that you get. But I'm pointing out: Do you want to risk existential? changes so probably not i would imagine that they're going to probably both sides try to come to some kind of settlement because the risk of a jury trial is enormous it is all or nothing 
and it could have a dramatic impact on antitrust cases and how they're prosecuted in the United States. That's a quite literal thing if we're working with what kind of precedent this might create. Again, it could vastly alter the MMA industry in ways that are very hard to predict. And I just mentioned all the downstream folks who are, you know, who are sort of getting their, their palate cl- uh, quenched from the fire hose. If that comes to a close, there's going to be some real pissed off people as a consequence. Um, so, so that's what happened. Basically, they have the UFC, they've tried everything they can for this not to get to trial. And it's going to trial <laughs> unless they settle between now and then. But there's nothing else. There's no other obstacle. There's no other card to pull. There's nothing. This thing, and the judge wants to fast track it. April, April of 2024. Um, now, how long a trial like that would take, I don't really know. How long for all those things to get implemented? If there is a a jury trial or whatever, I don't even know. I don't even know how any of that would work. But they want to get that motherfucker going in in um, April. So, it's a huge deal. It's a massive, massive massive deal. It's the biggest thing I've ever seen that could affect the MMA industry in all my time. Right? Because the other ones were kind of smaller. They were trying to get regulated in this state. Try to get regulated in this territory. You know, try to get the this newspaper to cover them. These were all important battles, but they were all... And, and again, in, in, the, in the broader picture altogether, it all adds up to something very significant. I don't want to say it doesn't. But each of those battles was quite small. This battle is an existential one for the UFC. Existential. No less than that. Don't let anybody tell you it's any less than that. That doesn't mean that those things will happen. But that is what they are risking taking it to trial. They are risking an existential change of their, to their business to the point where it would look very, very different. You, it, would look, it would look much more like boxing, I suspect, where... You would still have one dominant promoter, and I think UFC would probably still be that, but it would be much more parity uh, among the promoters at that point. You know, uh, so you're asking what that court did. That court just said back. Basically, the court basically told them either you fuck or settle, or get ready for a trial in April because that's that's what's left here. Big doings, big. I've got cotton mouth, and I didn't even smoke weed today. I don't know what happened. Sorry. All right, this is an interesting one. Uh, yeah, we've been over this one too. Like, how is John the baddest man on the planet? Well, I guess today it's Francis, right? Francis is probably the baddest man on the planet. But what would his argument be? He beat older guys, not younger guys. Yeah, that's a big knock. Not in terms of his like resume, but it's a knock on... Um, a second weight class campaign and its value. He didn't beat like absolute scrubs, but he beat a guy in Gone who was totally unprepared for the level of competition he was facing, and then a guy in eventually in Stipe who is old. He's old. So, what does that really mean for his resume? What does that really mean for those kinds of things? It's a good question. But we've been over it a million times. Uh, let's see. Why is it so predictable that a guy who has insane strength and insane durability would do well against Tyson Fury? Yeah, okay. Simple because of Ngannou's physical attributes, but he didn't beat Fury just from his physical attributes. 
did he? Right? That's not really how he beat him. He has great physical attributes, and they helped him, for example, in taking that elbow from Fury. Okay, that's true. That was great. Uh, he's got good punching power. That's true, you know. But, like, look about his footwork. Look at his timing. Look at his technical evolution. Like, yes, he obviously is very, very, very physically gifted. Yes. The Francis, the Francis Ngannou story is that dude is physically gifted. But at the same time, uh, the other part of the story is he is a rapid improve. Uh, his technical improvement has been surprisingly good. Surprisingly good. So this idea that like, well, you could take a guy averagely talented and do him, give him like Francis's physique and athletic ability, he would do well. He would do well. I don't know if he would do as well as Francis does. Francis is not like some physical freak with average technique. I mean, he's not great at everything. He has to make trade-offs. He's a heavyweight. But, like, you know, he's got real real skill. He's got real skill. Do you think there's any chance the Saudis could save Jones Francis? That's interesting. Um, only, again, only if the UFC wanted him to, right? There has to be an amount of money that could fold Dana's ego. Probably. Probably. Is there a point of money? If the Saudis came and said, we want to see this fight, we're just going to pay stupid money. And we're just going to, you know. And also, too, like, one thing that folks have to re really imagine is, like, if you look at Tank versus Ryan, Tank versus Ryan was technically a co-promotion. Where it was PBC and Golden Boy because Ryan Garcia is represented by Golden Boy. But Showtime controlled the entire production. Did you guys notice that? Like, there was no DAZN commentator on that Showtime. It was it was Al, it was Abner, and it was Morrow, and it was Brian Custer, right? Like, that was still... So, my point being is, you would still get... You know, do I think that the UFC and PFL are equivalent entities and are bringing equivalent um, resources to any particular event? Of course not. Of course not. You know, that the UFC would retain virtually... I mean, are we going to do that in the smart cage? <laughs> I think I might puke if they did that in the smart cage. I and mean, what a waste of time. Can you imagine having that covered up with fucking billboards of useless stats that they like to put up? The UFC would control the production of that in every way. And they would promote probably their belt in every way. Like, and you know, whatever. There'd be a lot that they, they might even make them wear UFC gloves. Like, there could be any number of things where they, it doesn't even look like a PFL broadcast. PFL just gets to co-promote in name and that's it because they got Francis. But even that, I mean, even that I think would be better than what we're getting now, which is not the fight at all. And you, I know what everyone's going to say. Oh, how unrealistic it is. How unrealistic it is. Yeah, fine. I don't understand the argument that I need to advocate for things that are not in my interest. How on earth is it in my interest to not ask for the biggest promoter to put on arguably the biggest heavyweight fight of all time? How is that in my interest? Me or you? How is that in your interest? I mean, that just seems silly. And everyone being like, oh, it put PFL on the map. Guys, the UFC could co-promote with them two times a year, and it wouldn't save PFL. <laughs> the fuck are you talking about? Like, this is just, it's just total nonsense. The UFC's success is, in, there's a, any number of factors. It works like this, guys. At any point in combat sports history, there's been a group of people that the public sort of perceived to be the best. Now, in 2023, but long before this, but by 2023, the public perceives the UFC fighters in general to be the best. 
And so for any organization to be able to compete, they have to be able to get access to enough of those fighters in crossover bouts that the public would demand, and that would confer different forms of credibility across other places. But the point I'm trying to make here is if they just did one with John and Francis, A, everyone would make money. B, PFL would not make enough money to survive. And C, they wouldn't get access to anybody else. There's not really a huge demand for whoever they have, like OAM versus whatever. Francis is really their only pay-per-view attraction. So this idea that like, oh, it would, you know, it would really it would boost PFL's fortunes. It would. It would boost PFL's fortunes. We should be honest about that. But not in any kind of way that would ever threaten UFC. It couldn't. It wouldn't. It's not possible. It would require like vast amounts of exposure and crossover and then, you know, to get results that would buoy the PFL side in doing so. They, that, that's just not where we are. That's not what, is anyone demanding, Amanda Nunes is retired, you can't do the Kayla crossover. Cyborg, I guess they'll have, is there a really a big demand for that? There is, but you know, that's not really like a huge pay-per-view fight. Francis versus John is a huge pay-per-view fight. So people will tell you like, this is, uh, they'd, be, they'd be making a competitor stronger. Yeah, on some level they would be. I think that's true, but not in a way that's in any way, <laughs> in any way, a threat to their core business whatsoever. None. Zip. Zilch. Zero. Like, doesn't exist. It's just a completely phony concern. It can't happen. It can't happen. The only way that can happen is if you get access to a large swath of the pay-per-view guys and they go over and then they begin to mingle. That's when you get it. That's when you can really begin to spread credibility, so to speak. But the shit everyone else is talking about, it's like some 2007 fantasy where it's like, we don't want to give Strike Force an inch. It's like, okay, we're not in that world anymore. We're not in that world. What did UFC make in revenue in the first two quarters of the year? Over $600 million? I mean, that's that's worth more than PFL and Bellator probably not, I won't say combined, but not much more. Not much more. You know, and they're making that in revenue in two quarters. Like, what are, we ta- what are we talking about here? It's so weird, right? The people who are, like, very opposed to this idea... They, on the one hand, they want you to know how superior the UFC is to everyone. And then at the same time, they want you to also believe that any potential crossover, well, in this particular case, this potential crossover bout, would be so ruinous for the UFC that they could never even contemplate doing it. Guys, which is it? Are they that strong or are they that weak? You can't have it both ways. Doesn't work that way. They're fucking strong as shit. They're mega strong. Um... So this idea that like this would be all oh, this would, this would really you know people would begin to think of PFL on the same level as UFC. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't because then you have to go right back to Dingus versus Dongus and Fucko versus Fuck E, which is you know a large swath of their card. They got some good fighters on, the, on those cards too. Let's not. I'm not trying to be utterly disrespectful, but I'm trying to be realistic about it as like a pay per view attraction. But they got. I mean, oh, they got Jake Paul. Okay, all right. I mean, is Danny going to do? I mean, you know, is there real demand for the MMA fan base for Jake Paul versus somebody on the UFC? I don't really have any interest in that, you know. But I do have interest in John versus Francis. I got interest in that big time. There was one of the polls. You can put it up on the screen if you want. We could take a look at it. Hold on. Uh, will Tyson versus Francis two happen in boxing in twenty four? We got some. Nah, thirty five percent, maybe, but not immediately. That's kind of where I am. I'm at maybe, but not immediately. So you can count me in on the 37%. The no is interestingly high. Like, that is interestingly high. I wonder if he gets a fight with, I can't even believe I'm, you know, we're saying this, but if he gets a fight with Anthony Joshua or a fight with Deontay Wilder or something like that. 
Um, as crazy as this sounds, do you think Dana likes having a figure like Kadyrov around? That's a weird question. Dana does a lot of things to craft specific fans. His personality, miscues, and political allegiance are well known. He's so prevalent, you have to like him or tolerate him to be a fan. Hey, Art, I, I, I doubt he. I, I mean, I doubt that anyone who is banned from doing business with him by virtue of the U.S. Treasury. I doubt that Dana likes those people. I'd be, I'd be very surprised to find that he likes them. Uh, I couldn't possibly tell you, I, but my hunch is that no. But uh, are people still bitter about that Bud Light thing, <laughs> or is that already over? Right. Is that already over? Uh, listen, there's plenty of good reasons to to drink or not. Well, excuse me, I should say this. Yes, there are good reasons to drink Bud Light, which is uh, it's cheap, and uh, if you're sad or if you're a college kid or if you have the beer palate of you know a teenager, it can be fine. It's right. Uh, if you like good beer, Bud Light sucks balls. So there's plenty of reasons to also not like it, right? It's not it's not very good. Um. I didn't think that that boycott was going to last for two fucking seconds. Uh, I just don't buy it. It's like, first of all, UFC's real fans are like super loyal and have been loyal to them through thick and thin. So number one, I think people vastly underestimate the loyalty of the average UFC viewer, number one. And number two, guys, where the fuck else are you going to go for your MMA? <laughs> it's a monopoly. <laughs> Where are you going to go? Oh, I don't watch UFC anymore. I just watch Bellator prelims. Oh, word? Word? Is that what you do? They got one They got one event left in their uh, run before they get taken over. You know. Oh, I, don't, I, don't, I only watch one. Okay, one provides something of a different product, but it's like that was the only thing you watched. I think that you'd feel like you're missing out on quite a bit. It's not real. It's like the people being like, remember that dude who got beaten up? In the uh, in the he was he he was sitting in his chair in a flight. He was on, he had boarded a flight. I think it was like Delta or whatever. And he didn't want to get out of his seat, so they called the cops to come get him out. And they like fucked this guy up way more than they were supposed to. And they bashed all of his teeth. And it was like it was real. It was a shit show. This either was like right before the pandemic or sometime around then. And everyone was like, "I'm gonna boycott Delta, bitch." How? Like the airline industry has been. Uh, deregulated to the point where your choice of carriers is highly, highly, highly a function of what airport you're closest to. It's not like you can, I mean, yes, you could take, you know, I'm not going to fly American versus Delta, but your choices are super narrow. And for certain people who have to go for particular routes, there's almost nothing you can do. Like this idea that you can boycott in a system that has been in an, in an, in an, uh, in an industry that has been as consolidated as like big tech or, the airline industry or, you know, you name it. Like, the, I'm, I've got real consumer choices here. Get the fuck out of here. No, you don't. And anyway, Bud Light is uh, owned by the same fucks who own Modelo anyway. Like, I, I, didn't, buy, I didn't buy that shit at all. Uh, also, I don't hate gay or trans people. So, like, I also didn't understand why people were bitter about it. But whatever. That's a separate debate, I suppose. But that, that thing, we're, we're going to, you know, we're just going to boycott. Bitch, how? How? <laughs> Where are you going to go? You know, you're not, you have nowhere to go. That's the choice. Like, who, who, who are you fooling? I'm just going to stop watching MMA. All right. You know, how many MMA, how many real MMA fans do you know that go, oh man, I'm just going to stop watching MMA. Yo, fuck those guys. I don't, I'm so, I, I can't think of the world. I cannot take any kind of opinion unless it's refracted through the prism of culture wars. 
And so for that reason, this thing that I like, I'm just going to stop liking it all of a sudden. Get the fuck out of here. I mean, who believes that bullshit? Anyway, I see the numbers dropping. That's all right. I don't care. All right. We'll do a couple more of these and we'll get to the paid ones. Someone's asking if we've seen the new Mission Impossible. I've rented it. I've not watched it yet. That's on the to-do list. It's on the to-do list. Let's see what else we got. Good question. Luke, after watching Francis compete last Saturday, who do you think he has a better chance of beating in boxing? Joshua Wilder or Usyk? Siempre de asando. Lo mejor para el paisa. Luke desde Miami. Thank you, my friend. Um... Okay, the question would be, who I think, okay, Usyk, probably not, right? Usyk's smaller, but he's super crafty, so it's Wilder or Joshua. Um, dude, Francis's durability is absurd, right? Like, his chin is fucking absurd. It's, it's just insane how good his chin is. So, you'd have to kind of like, again, like his chances. I don't even know what that really means, but I... You have to like how well he could perform in, frankly, either of those fights. I think Joshua would be very afraid of contact and would really be at the end of his jab, but that would put him in some tough spots. Wilder is much more wide open, and he's a dangerous threat, but I don't know if his chin is as good as Francis's. Um, so I'm not here to tell you that he's going to go in there and beat those guys. Remember, he did not beat Tyson Fury. I know, I know, I know, but he technically didn't. So I don't know exactly how far he could go, but... Some of the things you like about Francis and what he was able to show, if he can show those things against those guys, you don't want to you don't want to piss on his chances there either, do you? Um, I'd rather see the Wilder fight because I think it's a little bit more interesting. But the Joshua fight, if they make it again, if it's twelve rounds, do you pick against Joshua? I would feel kind of like an asshole doing it, but I'd kind of feel like an asshole not doing it at this point because of what Francis was able to show. It's, 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 it's really hard to make sense of these questions. And even Dewey Cooper again yesterday, even Dewey Cooper yesterday was saying, I asked him, like, do you think what this showed was that other MMA fighters could do what Francis did, that we had overestimated the gap between elite boxer and elite MMA fighter? And he was like, no, not really. It's mostly just a Francis thing. <laughs> I mean, even he was like, nah, it's really, it's, it's a Francis thing. It's a Francis thing. And you're like, shit, man. So it, it makes these questions very weird, very unusual, very hard to parse. Um, I suspect, you know, Joshua a little harder to win rounds against. Wilder obviously has nuclear power, you know. I don't know. I've not talked to Brett, but here we go. Luke, genuinely wondering what happened to Brett Okamoto the moment he mildly criticized Dana, he disappeared from the entire UFC circle. That's not quite, well, I don't know about that, but what the hell happened? Well, first of all, he was all over that broadcast for ESPN. He was all over that broadcast for um, Fury and Engano. So I think he's doing all right, right? Um, I've heard, I think he signed a new deal. I think he's doing just fine. But yeah, he, I don't, he, he didn't even mildly criticize Dana. He asked Dana a mildly critical question. So then Dana has the opportunity to respond. And I've noticed that, like, I think just in general, they're handing out a lot less scoops, right? Like they're keeping the scoops for themselves and now Dana will announce them or something like that. Um, again, I don't know if it's retaliatory or not. It would not surprise me if it was. That would be very much in keeping with how business is done. I mean, this is the thing. It's like, oh, we don't tell people what to say here. Dude, like these are some of the most thin-skinned people in the industry. Like it's just, you know, they cut out the pro-Palestinian message of Islam Makachev 
when they put up the clip when he said after his fight on YouTube, like, what are we talking about here? You know, and again, it's not, no one never really got to the bottom of the flag thing about why, why in Abu Dhabi they couldn't have flags, whether it was a government thing or a, or not, you know, everyone likes the speech that they like. Let's just be honest about that. That's the way the world works. People like the speech that they like. They don't like the speech that they don't. And then there's, everyone tries to pretend they're much more accommodating of those things than they are. But you know, this is the way the world works. So, uh, would it? I don't know if they've done anything or, or not related to Brett, but like, would it surprise me? No, of course not. Of course not. You know, it's very hard to be like the the penalties for doing the job in a honest way in this industry are significant, or at least they can be significant. I should say you can still thrive, but they can be significant. They can be. All right. Uh, with that in mind, let's go to some of the paid questions if we can. I appreciate everyone. Uh, here we go. Pulling everyone back in. Let's see what we got here. Again, if you don't want to do this side, that's cool. I'm just glad you're here. Thank you for being here. But if you are being so kind, and if you're a member, you can get in on them. That's part of the deal of being a member. Then we'll take that as well. All right, let's see what we got here. Yeah. Here's from Tony For Real, who's shirtless. Tone For Real. Thank you, Tone. All right, warm empanada. I do like a warm empanada. Pros and cons of working from home. Any advice? Pros. Um, very hard to be late. Uh, very easy to make it to your house on quitting time. Uh, but you need to have a separate space from where you work and where you live. And that doesn't mean you have to live in a mansion where you have tons of different rooms. But you need to have a dedicated space. And that dedicated space is not where you like socialize, where you entertain guests. If, it, if at all, you can help it. It's not where you sleep. You don't work from your bed. You do have to have a separated kind of thing when you do that. What do you make of Chael and Helwani's spat? Um... I didn't see all of it. I saw about half of it. I was I was watching it. I think that, you know... <laughs> first of all, there's, you saw two friends arguing. Two friends are going to argue in sometimes nasty ways. There's that. It also wouldn't surprise me. You know, dude, Chael is clever. Am I saying this is what happened? I can't prove it to you. Part of me thinks that what Chael was doing was intentional, right? He was intentionally being provocative and intentionally pushing buttons and intentionally going down certain lines of argument to get um, to get a bigger reaction and then a bigger reaction to get more of a spotlight. Like, I'd be, in fact, I'd be surprised if that didn't happen. You know, um, that's Chael, man. That's what you got to know what you're up with, not up against per se, but you got to know what you're dealing with. I think is a better way to put it. When Chael, you know, listen, Chael is one of the most friendly, uh, accommodating guys I've ever met in the industry. And when you see him get bitter, sometimes he's bitter. Sometimes he genuinely is bitter. But a lot of times I've seen him bitter and then talked to him after the fact and been like, no, nah, I wasn't bitter. I was just, I was trying to do this to get this reaction. I was trying to do that to get that reaction. Like he's straight up told me that before. So it's very hard for me to look at what I did see and be like, Oh, that just organically developed the way that it did. Maybe on some level it organically developed the way that it did, but I have a bigger feeling that it. Um, there's a little bit of that going on from Chael, right? Will the antitrust lawsuit be televised? I don't know what the rules are for uh, Judge Bulware's courtroom. I don't know. I don't know. I know media will be allowed in, but I don't know beyond that. Thoughts on Las Vegas not getting Fury and Ganu? Are you concerned about huge boxing and UFC events leaving? It's one of those situations where it's like, what can you do about it? It's like, oh, I'll boycott this. But like they're putting on Fury and Ganu wasn't relevant in the way that we thought it is now relevant. At the time, we thought it was a big joke. 
but it was big names. But it wasn't like they weren't putting on Jones Francis, right? Which would be super relevant. And again, I understand that after the fact, Fury and Ganu took on extraordinary relevance. But you know what I mean? They're just kind of burning money. Like, oh, well, I'm not going to pay for the pay-per-view. I'm just going to pirate it. Like, you think the Saudis give a shit, you know? Um, I don't know how much can be done. I think you just... I mean, this is the thing about it. Like, this is why I always bring it up. And, like, I know some people don't want to hear this shit. But, like, this is my objection to it. Because just like if I purchase an iPhone, and we talked about this a million times, I cannot remove myself from the chain of custody of world trade. And to what extent that implicates me morally in how this stuff is developed. It's the same thing. Like, when the Saudis bring it to your door... You're, 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 it, 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 and you're, if you're media covering it, it pulls you into the custody of this whole operation as well, maybe in a much more minor role, but now you're participating in it. But the problem with these folks is that there's so many people who will work with them, and your uh, economic boycott, it only works if it's like not as an economic boycott. I mean, dude, think about, and this is true, like, how did apartheid in South Africa get overturned? Part of it was like guys like John McEnroe not accepting money. This is true. John McEnroe in the height of apartheid refused to go play a tennis match down there because he didn't want to give the impression that he was lending credibility to the South African government at that time. And it was not just that, of course, but the way in which they were able to win was because they had this kind of economic and moral pressure on these larger nations that was forcing... Um, ultimately some kind of economic consequence onto South Africa. But more than that, there was obviously bigger consequences. But it was done, even though, this is getting in the weeds, even though the ANC had, a, a, for a time, a, 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 an armed element to what they did. The real way in which this was overturned was this kind of pressure from the community of nations. Like, you don't, you just don't have any of that. It doesn't, it doesn't really apply in any of this case. So I don't really know what can be done. You just kind of have to observe it and see where it's going to go. Um it's not it's not really the the same kinds of levers you can pull from that example in South Africa in the 80s they don't really exist here Henry again I've always admired you for listening to other perspectives I'm aware of power slide being heavily criticized but will you and BC ever talk about it on MK uh, only if we're taking a huge fucking dump on it if we're taking a giant shit on it then yes we'll talk about it I'm not going to talk about defenseless combat sports in any kind of serious way. I'm not going to do that. So, no. If you did an RSD with Francis, how likely is it that BC would ask about the size of his dong? The question is not whether that is likely. The question is, would it happen in the first five minutes? You know, and I'm going to guess it would happen in the first five questions. <laughs> Henry, one more time from the top rim. If Saudi Arabia's uh, minister approached you in BC to cover a boxing or UFC event and offered you guys massive amounts of money, would you take it or even consider it? No, not even on the table. Oh, Luke, what about for a million? No, hundred million. No, a billion. A billion? I don't know about a billion. Maybe that's what it would take. But even then, the answer is no. No, I'm not going to Saudi Arabia. Not until there, not until there's substantial changes to the way in which things are done. No, no, not possible. And frankly, I don't trust my ability to get in and out of the country without having a law enforcement issue because I've publicly spoken out about some of these things. I don't imagine that I'm on some kind of famous person's list, but I also imagine that they're pretty aware of their critics. Um, so I don't think it's even safe for me to go. It's not really a question. The answer is no. BC can speak for himself. I don't know what he would do, uh, but the answer is no for me. Like, I've seen people be like, oh, it's because you guys couldn't get a cut. <laughs> I'm not, not in any way eager whatsoever to visit Saudi Arabia. Um, professionally, recreationally, nothing. I don't think it's safe. And uh, yeah, I'm not going. No. Nope. 
Is it disingenuous for Francis to say that fighters' rights were an important part of his contract negotiations and then go to and take money from Saudi, which doesn't give an F about human rights? That's a good question. So this is the really this is the interesting part about it all, right? It's like I care about fighters' rights. And I think you can look at his actions, and I don't think in terms of his professional conduct. Let me think this through. In terms of what he is trying to do for the visibility and the plight of high, because really he's not the average MMA fighter. He's the he's a high earning MMA fighter, right? No matter what, he's a high earning MMA fighter. I mean, how many guys have gotten a million dollar checks from UFC for a single fight? Not that many in the history of the organization, right? Very small amount. Oh, or or ten million dollar offer, like you know, very 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 few. So he's a high so. What he is doing is sort of creating a bit of a, a awareness for the visibility of that. I'm told that there was a lot of talk in other parts of the world, like uh, like in England and whatnot, in covering this fight, a discussion about fighter pay and why Francis was even doing this to begin with. It's kind of a very interesting story. Um, so I don't think he's been inconsistent in that way. I think in that way he has been, through that course that he is charting remains consistent even if he doesn't fight in the pfl he got the deal from the pfl that was representative in that way and then the way he moves through boxing and the way he was able to self-actualize and then having to do that really not even in his native sport all of this sort of like raises awareness for these issues in a pretty magnified way i think i give him a pass on that but the question you're asking and it's one i've been dealing with myself which is it just amazes me how many people are willing to take this kind of money and people being like oh you know, you can call it Saudi blood money or whatever else you want to call it. Again, folks, you've got to understand something. The more they've done this tourism, the more they're uh, tamping down on human rights, throwing people in jail for the most feeblest of things you take for granted with various, various free speech um, provisions in law and the like. Like they absolutely running that over. They did, they did in 2022, they did 80, 81 beheadings or at a bare minimum, 81 executions in a single day of people that had barely had any criminal justice representation whatsoever, certainly many innocent among them, um, to say nothing of how repressed the government is. I mean, there's no, there's nothing good you can say about that government, nothing, other than they have a lot of money and they're willing to spend it on combat sports. Yay, great. So that's really the trade-off that you're making is do you want to do business with people like that? And it turns out there's a lot of people who do, which blows my fucking mind, but they do. Um and so I think if you want to say it's interesting that Francis wants to take the rights of like laborers who have his similar kind of profile and magnify that, that's great. But like, how does that align with people? Like, for example, Kareem Zidane had asked, um, I think rightly, you know, Francis is an African immigrant, but the Saudis are famous for having slaughtered many of them just in the last year. Um, to say nothing of what they've done with the atrocities in Yemen, and, and which, by the way, the U.S. is also capable. I mean, I can go on and on about some of this, and folks are like, well, of course, if the U.S. is implicated, but right, it, it, fighters aren't getting money from the U.S. Sovereign Wealth Fund. It doesn't exist. So I think you could say that there's, you know, this if you're casting an eye on the unfairness of labor practices, that's one thing, but then you're turning a blind eye to these, like, human rights atrocities, and then you're taking money from these people that have a pretty sketchy past. Like, what kind of light does that shed? At the same time, you know, and I'm, I, I think those are fair questions. At the same time, it's also like just realistically for a guy who grew up in one of the most broken countries in West Africa, from one of the most broken backgrounds of a broken country in West Africa, 
um, whose you know life was almost certain to be one of short brutish impoverment impoverment impov impoverment yeah I, I don't know what the fuck I'm saying poverty I can't talk today how easy is it to tell that guy to give up on money that was is you know otherwise impossible um, just realistically how easy is that to do so. It's it, there is some complicating factors to it. I, I don't really know what to say. It seems like it, almost like some of these guys have very, and all of us to a degree, all of us to a degree have compartmentalized identities around this kind of question. I do think there is. I do think that if this is my only thing, this is my only thing. If you're going to take money from people like that, which I do think some people who we like will, you. This is the same thing with getting back to the whole Gaethje thing. It's like if you're going to take money from these people, you should be expected to answer for it. I think that's a bare minimum. Like the idea that, again, what's my rule for rich people? The idea that rich people through their money should also be able to quiet criticism of them seems like that's not the deal. If you get to be rich, you get to be criticized and people get to make fun of you really without much issue. Um, so I have, I have mixed feelings about it. I think like most people, I don't know how to reconcile them. And I think in a sport where the object is to get money, prize fighting, that's actually the sport. The sport is actually prize fighting. In a sport like that, in a situation like that, um, I don't know how you talk them out of it. And I, I candidly don't know how you talk them out of it. Nothing I could say to the 99.9% .9 of them would ever be effective. So I can only conduct my business as the way I want to conduct my business. Um, but the Saudis have a level of money that make typical moral questions much more difficult to answer. What makes you think Fury was unprepared? He said he was prepared for the best of his ability to do a 12-week camp. What is your evidence? Instead of making excuses, maybe you should just eat crow. No offense. Yes, I'm sure Adam had put all the money down on Francis. People doing this bullshit like, I see, I'm the one who called it. All you motherfuckers didn't call her. Just please stop with this bullshit. But okay, since you donated, I'll answer it um, to the best of my ability. It looks, uh, it, it looks to me like Francis had done zero, not Francis, I'm sorry. It looked to me like Fury had done zero tape study. It looked to me like he wasn't really sure about what he was going to get. Didn't have much of a A or I didn't have much of a B or C game to go to. He had kind of a B game to go to, but it was not very effective. And the question you have to ask yourself is, um, would he, would you expect him to have a similar performance the next time around? I would not. Conversely, I would expect also Francis to have a fair amount of things changed as well. But Fury on top of that, Fury. I don't think he looked physically out of shape. I do think he trained. Remember, the Usyk fight is was originally intended to not be too far away. But at the same time, uh, I've just seen Fury so much sharper, so much more laser-focused, so much more aware of what his game plan should be. And once he f encountered resistance, he really couldn't adapt in ways that I think in hindsight or with a second opportunity he will be able to. It's really a question of um, when we say prepared, you can be physically prepared. Are you tactically and strategically prepared? He did not look tactically and strategically prepared to me. I guess we'll see you next time. John Nash recently proposed that UFC brass might look to fire sale and leave shareholders with damages bill if UFC lawsuit goes to trial. Yeah, they probably that I wouldn't rule that I, I wouldn't rule that out. 
Would you want to be holding the bag if it goes to trial? <laughs> Would you? Facing existential change? You know, there, there could, again, we are speculating here. It should be very clear that's what we're doing. But there might be people in the organization who are like, listen, as long as we get to do it under these terms, we're happy to keep doing it. But if those terms get changed, we don't want to do it that way anymore. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see that at all. And also, like, how many of these guys are already, like, filthy rich? Why do you want the headache? Who you got Jones versus Nganu in a boxing match? Nganu. Easy. Josh says, you say the UFC can make the fight tomorrow, but does John even want Francis? I don't know. Assuming no drug penalty, he had two and a half years. Maybe John wants easy fights now. That has been something that has been floated out there. Again, your, your mileage may vary on a question like that. But you're right. There was time to make that fight. The fight wasn't made. And now here we are. Um, I don't know what John wants. I saw he got bitter at Ariel. Did you see that? He was like, no wonder I haven't given you an interview. It's like, it's like John, that's not as really devastating as you might imagine. You know? Um, I have a vague awareness of what Ariel makes. And uh, I can tell you, he's, he's doing just fine. <laughs> it's like this make or break thing. It's like, I haven't talked to John since what? When was the last time I talked to him? Shit. I don't even know. Sometime around UFC 200, something around that. I don't think I've talked to him since. It's been 100 UFCs. I make more than I ever made. Like, okay. Uh, anybody that gave Fury the win is being biased. Okay, guys, we got to do something here first, please. Now, Gregory, I'm not picking on you. You seem like a nice fellow. Okay, fellas. You got to help me out here. You got to help me out here. I'm here to help you, so help me back, okay? And I swear, Gregory, I'm not picking on you. I appreciate this donation, but we got to do this. You cannot be biased. It's not possible. The words don't work that way. You can only be biased. B-I-A-S-E-D. Biased. You can show bias. You can have bias you can demonstrate bias that works but if you're going to accuse someone of that of having that or being that they have to have uh they can have bias but they are being biased b-i-a-s-e-d please everybody please this is one of my uh pet peeves it drives me nuts Anybody that gave Fury the win is being biased. If you reverse the roles and Fury got the knockdown and was clearly backing up Francis, there would be nobody even making the argument that Francis won. It's not really quite so simple. Boxing is not judged the same way that MMA is judged or damages the... First of all, he got a 10-8 round that round. So, I mean, we're counting the knockdown. Trust me, he got two, basically two points for that. Um, boxing is not judged in this damage or nothing kind of way that MMA is, where you go to cage control or whatever as any kind of tiebreaker or tertiary kind of consideration. It's not how boxing is judged. Boxing is judged very differently. If you're not familiar with how boxing is judged, then I think these pronouncements about who is or who isn't biased should be tempered a little bit. Rip Dipple says, it would be unwise for smaller MMA guys to think they can replicate what Francis did in heavyweight, right? Does anyone really think an MMA guy could be competitive against well, Better Beef is 175, so... But okay, I know what you mean, less than 200 pounds. Crawford, Inouye, or Davis. Yeah, those guys would fucking murder everybody. 
Better Beef's a little bit older, so I think that's not quite the same, but certainly, and Crawford too, but all Crawford's like, you know, Crawford. But like for Tank and Inouye, like, dude, there's no one in boxing that would survive very long with them. No one in MMA, I should say. Great name, Donnie. Great name. By the way, I went to the uh, I went to the dispensary the other day. They had a because you know I, I've got a medical license and everything. They had a strain of sativa called Cat Piss. That was the name, Cat Piss. I was like, okay. Don't know if I want to buy the Cat Piss. Got to be honest. Hey, what did you go and buy at the store? Oh, I didn't go to the store. I got too high because I went to the dispensary and bought Cat Piss weed. What's in it? I don't know. Probably cat piss. I'm guessing. <laughs> All right. You have to raise a child to someday fight Bane. I don't know who the other person is or Chong Lee in a one-night tourney. Map out your training plan over the years to win a tourney. First of all, that's child abuse. I'm not doing that, so I'm not going to answer that question. I'm hopefully going to get through my daughter's childhood without being like quite obviously abusive. I mean, I'm sure I'm going to make plenty of errors along the way. I already have, but you know, your child has to fight in a tournament. Yeah, my child's not doing that. Oh, you guys both have to die. Then I guess we'll die. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not. Mm, that's child abuse. All right. Connor never making eight figures is bananas. Now, we don't know what he made for or the Habib fight. Anyway, they could have paid their top stars more than what was reported. Guys, why the fuck would they do that when these are court documents? Why would they under-report what they pay, which would only make them look worse? And now this trial is headed where now this court case is now headed to a trial i keep trying to understand that it's like yo they want to keep that shit low dude what the fuck for right now what the fuck for right now keeping what was initially under lock and key because if the ufc had had their way in court they would have never submitted any of this or they would have had to submit it and then have it sealed and then the case be dismissed so that the public never gets to see it so in a case where they dis- where they initially had to provide this in kind of information. Why the fuck would they underreport things that would only make their legal troubles worse? Why would they do that? It just doesn't it doesn't even pass basic muster. People just can't believe that the numbers are as low as they are. That I mean, I don't know what to tell you. What did you make of the very heated Chael versus Hawaiian debate about if Francis made the right move leaving the UFC following the Fury fight is how is there an argument to be made about this? Like, quite obviously, he made the best decision. I mean, I guess if he gets knocked out by Deontay Wilder, you could maybe argue something else. But, you know, what's he going to make for that fight? So, guys, uh, Spence versus Crawford at 85 bucks a pop sold 650,000 buys, which is about $55 million. The gate was another $20 million, so it's about $75 million. How much did Spence and Crawford get paid? Pop quiz. Pop quiz. And by the way, there's other forms on top of this. But like, what do we know that they got guaranteed? How about $25 million a piece? So $50 million of the overall $75 million. That's how much they got paid. Um, I don't know what to tell everybody. Like, did you think that we were all lying about these guys being underpaid this whole time? We've been saying that they have court documents for years now just... Just go look at them. We're not. It's, <laughs> it's like, wow, these guys. <laughs> wow, I thought the MMA media was lying for the last uh, five years. No, no, no. It turns out uh, we're not been. No. 
We have a really small sample size of elite boxers versus elite MMA fighters. I think the more crossover we see, more MMA guys will beat boxers. I think what you might see is more MMA guys having individual forms of success. The occasional one might win, but I don't think it would be a whole lot different from the, what we basically understand it to be. Francis, I do think, is an exception. Again, the clash between Chael and Ariel. I think Chael actually had a good point about the pay-per-view not actually being viably good for business. Yeah, there's no way the pay-per-view made money. Dude, I'm telling you, like the cost of that thing was astronomical. It didn't make a fucking dime. It lost tens of millions. Like I said before, it lost tens of millions of dollars. It's why other promoters can't do stuff like that. They literally cannot afford to like burn through it. They don't even have the money to do it. And if they did, to burn through it. And so in that sense, like, it's just this gross thing, you know. But that's not, I mean, I don't know what kind of criticism that's supposed to be. It's like, if the Saudis don't care and it's not really relevant for whether or not they'll do business in the future, why do they care? All they care about is what that event is supposed to do for them. Not whether that event, you know, brings back a bunch of money to the kingdom. They're, they just care about, like, do people, like, dude, they had all these people show up to Saudi Arabia to all celebrate this thing. Like, they got what they wanted out of that times 10. Honest prediction for Dingus versus Dongus in the PFL. Thanks for the show. Um... Dingus. Always dingus. All right, here we go. Is Francis's loss over the weekend the biggest win from a loss in all of combat sports? I will say this. Lesnar's loss to, to Mir was also one of pretty big significance, but not as big as this. This is bigger. This is definitely bigger. For Matt, is shoveling sand the best base for fight sport? If your name is Francis, it is. From JP34, please ask Luke for his comments on Gozali's missile. Yeah, did you guys see that? Um, I think it was um, it was Kareem Zidane. I guess I, I, I'm imagining that Haim Gozali has been activated or has volunteered for service as part of the Israeli military, and I guess had tweeted a picture of a photo of like a bomb that was had you know uh, Muslim fighters' names written on it. Yeah, this whole thing is getting into a very gross place, a very disgusting place. Um, you know, candidly, I'm not really sure what to say about the whole Palestinian thing. I mean, no one at my job has in any way suggested any harm would come of me if I were to um, speak out about it. So I want to be very clear about that. But, you know, you're looking around, you're seeing people losing their jobs for it. Um, you're, you know, all, all that has to happen is enough forces have to get marshaled and put pressure on your employer and then it's gone. Um, so, you know, we just live in a climate now where expressing solidarity with an aggrieved Palestinian people will result in potentially could result in um, you know loss of employment or worse which of course is nothing compared to what they're suffering but it's certainly out there um, I don't have much to say about Heim's missile other than that you know the whole thing is has turned into a dark 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 place but I will tell you that the leadership of the United States government today um, I'll never forgive this administration for how they've handled it I'll never forgive them I will never forgive them with, for how they've treated the Palestinian people. It's not possible. It's not. I don't care what they do from this day forward. It is not possible for me to forgive them for what they've done. And I suspect there's a lot of people, um, either of Arab or Islamic, uh, Arab descent or Islamic faith. I'm neither of those, but I'll just say that. I'll never forgive him and this administration for what they've done. Never, 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 never. The problem didn't start with him. I mean, it started on October 7th in a certain way, but obviously these people have been in conflict for a long time. So in many ways, um, these two populations, I should say, have been in forms of conflict long before that. But the, I'm just, 
I'll never forgive them. I, I cannot possibly forgive this administration or anything they've done. Um, I, uh, yeah, I'm not sure how else to say it. That, that, I hope that that's pretty clear. Um, he could not have done a worse job if he tried. Yeah. From Captain V, Luke had a chat with the homies about how MMA might be stagnant in terms of no progress on techniques. No. Has MMA become stagnant or do you have an example of current innovation? Yeah, go back and watch how um, Jack De La Maddalena fought Kevin Holland. Pay attention to the structure of his guard and some of the choices that he made defensively. I And I said this, I brought this up with Kieran Fitzgibbons. I really believe that you're the, one of the next big turns in MMA is strikers with much more sophisticated, sturdy, ready defense. And that will show up in weird ways. It's not going to show up with like way more highlight reel knockouts. I don't know that it will. But for people with a with a with a you know a more seasoned eye, I think what you're going to see is these guys. In a, it's it's also hard to say taking less damage because I still think it puts them in the line of fire. But in terms of uh, head damage, in terms of like more significant strikes that are or I should say uh, more impactful strikes to the body that can land, guys showing better defense, it will change the fights in certain ways, good or bad. But it will. It, it, I, I wonder um, how much strikes landed per minute will go down over the course of time if some of these practices gain a little bit more currency among a wider array of, of uh, strikers. But some of the better ones now, man, you're really seeing not just better use of defense, but like a defense-oriented game with offensive tentacles that come out of it, you know. Luke, any updates on the members-only videos content for only... Uh, oh, yes. Um, good question. We'll have more. Mm. Oh my God, Tuki's yelling. I'll have more for that. I'll have more for you on that next week. Stay tuned. I promise. Stay tuned. Uh, often, this is uh, for Luke. Etihad Arena in Abu Dhabi doesn't allow flags on their website. Flags are among prohibited items. Okay, still the UFC should have to answer for that. Right? And by the way, I'm just sort of taking your word for it. I'm not double checking. Luke, with, you, with 2023 drawing to a close, top five potential matchups in 2024. Francis and John. Again, it's unlikely, but it's what I want. Um, maybe Islam and Leon. Islam and Colby could be an interesting one as well. I think um, if it could happen, John versus the winner of Aspinall versus Pavlovich or whoever's the eventual heavyweight champion. I'm going to say, what else is out there that I really want to see? Um, either Volk Teporia or Teporia Max. Um, oh, I guess I guess you could say Gaethje and Islam is a potential one as well. Man, I mean middleweight is going to be crazy. Sean and Hamzat, DDP maybe versus the winner of them. Uh, Bo Nichols next fight. There's just going to be a ton of interesting fights in that direction as well. Can't believe I'm saying I'm like really excited about the future of middleweight, but I really am excited about the future of middleweight. Uh, do you think that Ilya has better BJJ than Volk? Yes, in the yes, because he's a black belt, but not in a way where if it incorporates into MMA wrestling, where you may notice it in super significant ways. I think he's got better polish on submission finishes. I do think that is true, uh, but you don't see Volk subbing a lot of people anyway. So yes, I do think he has better BJJ, but not in some kind of like, you know, it's curtains for him in the right 
um, position. Again, you wouldn't want to underestimate Taporia, but Volk has a lot of really good defensive sensibility. He's a very strong scrambler. He's a very strong physical human being. He's a strong anti-wrestler. These things negate a lot of what even a very polished BJJ practitioner can do. Ever been to Spain? Many times, my friend. Many times. Uh, it's my favorite country in the world outside of this, you know, it may be my favorite country in the world, period, to be honest with you. Um, Jesus, dude, Spain is, is heaven to me. If I could live anywhere, I would probably live there, to just flat out tell you that. Um, the food is outrageous. The lifestyle is so much better. You're not going to bankrupt yourself with medical debt in your 70s. Um, their universities are great and they're affordable. Um, the Spanish are racist as shit in general. <laughs> Not, not all of them. I don't want Spanish people raining down hate upon me, but yo, they're wild racist over there. Let's just be I'm just gonna call it like it is. They're wild racist in Spain. Um they've got real problems in La Liga with it, but um the history, the culture, and they're all so many different parts of Spain. They're all sort of very unique and interesting, whether you're in the Basque region or if you're in the um if you're in Barcelona and of course they can you know the the the, the people who are taken over by the French there, or excuse me, by the French, by the Spanish there, they, um, they have the, the Catalans, they've got their own language and everything else, Catalonians, they, they, they're a unique people as well, and then, dude, like, you go to places, it's so crazy, like, there's this place called Plaza Mayor in, in Madrid, where it's this giant old plaza that was built in, like, the 16th century, and it's still this beautiful, stunning architecture, and, like, this amazing food, and, like, amazing things to see, um, like, their art, and their Culture is just incredibly rich. Their sporting traditions are incredibly rich. The lifestyle is just so conducive to happiness. The food is next level. Like, <laughs> I'm, I mean, I'm, you're, you're, you're just checking off a lot of boxes. They've got mountain region to an extent. They've got um, beach region. They've got high-speed rail you can get from Barcelona to Madrid and back and forth. And this was a while ago. High-speed rail, you can take it for like 140, 150 euro. Which is a little expensive, but um, you can. That's like a nine-hour drive. You can get it in three, and the train barely moves. I mean, what else do you want me to say, dude? Like, it's Spain is lo mejor. All right, employees of a company taking the money bag isn't the same as an athlete taking the money. The latter can be blamed of sports washing; the former cannot. Uh, I do agree that there's a there is a there is separation between them. I don't know if it's quite as true as you're making it out to be, where there's no culpability, but I would grant it's not the same. Yes, I would very much grant it's not the same. What's the deal with the t-shirts that the WBC make their champs wear post fight? They look like they're from a '90s carnival. So Brian explained this to me. I guess the WBC, which is the one that has the green belts, as I understand it, inside boxing, those are the most coveted belts. Like everyone wants the green belt because they guess they like that one the most. And so they try to make guys wear either, you know, the champions to use that belt or for people who are competing in WBC contests who are champions to have any kind of gear that promotes it. Like they sell green hats now that have the WBC logo on top, which, you know, only a fucking schmuck would wear. But at the same time, like that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to promote this thing that this interest that they get from boxing and boxers to promote the brand. Jail crapping on fighters isn't a great look. He goes after Charles and Leon, etc. At least they were our UFC champs. Something a juice jail could never be. Um, yeah, dude, he... Look, like a lot of fighters promote the UFC's interest as the ones they think is a better orderly system. I disagree with Chael. I don't know if we need to go, like, you know, killing him for it, but 
You can say that. Hi, Luke. Can you rank these from best to worst? Sweet Caroline, Face the Pain, Washed Era Eminem rap. It's not even Washed Era. You know what he sounds like? I mean, like, obviously, old Eminem is amazing, but newer Eminem, Eminem sounds to me like... Uh, um, almost like he had, like, a Christian conversion. You know, like, he's not quite saying, like, in Lord Jesus God, but, like, the kind of messages are so sanitized as to be that boring. BC's Yacht Rock, anything by Pennington James. Pennington James, bottom of the list. Worst song ever is Sweet Caroline. Face the Pain right behind it. BC's Yacht Rock behind that. Eminem and then Pennington James. Washed era Eminem rap. But yeah, dude, people people talking about how I'm rapping about... Like, obviously, dude, if you are sick and then you're addicted, then you recover. I mean, that's a very... um, It's a wonderful thing. Like, it's a very big, moving, powerful thing. It's not that easy to rap about that, it turns out, right? Like, the rap around that, and I know everyone's going to be like, oh, you're so wrong about this. His raps on that level are great. They're really not. They're really not that interesting. He's very talented. He doesn't lose his ability to be talented, but the songs, they lack a certain je ne sais quoi. They have, they, they're just missing an edge. It's almost like, again, it's like someone was like a real rocker then converted to Christian rock, and then it kind of slightly altered the lyrics. You're like, it doesn't quite sound the same. That's how it's like. I saw Justin crapping on your politics. Uh, that's effing rich. Oh, get you, yeah. Your views make you and who you are and him who he is. Ironically, his tweet's doing the same thing. Yeah, uh, he is allowed to defend his views such that he wants to. There's Albert. Thank you, Albert. There's Michael. There's Michael. Big glory card with multiple title fights on November 4th. I saw. Why are the highest level strikers still underpromoted? Glory has had a number of changes over the years. It's hard to make money in kickboxing, from what I can understand. Certainly, um, I guess outside of Japan, maybe Japan's a bit, bit of a different market, but it's just very, 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 very difficult for kickboxing to catch on um, with MMA fans, with the exception of one's four-ounce Muay Thai. It's just not very... People have been asking this question for... For any year I've been involved in combat sports, they've been asking this question. It's the, and the question literally hasn't changed. It's the exact same question. Thanks to Gabriel. See this dude's name? Isior Dia. Now, I don't know if he's Italian or whatever, but like, you, you guys know the name Isador, right? So my, my, my little girl came home from summer camp and she was like, yo, I'm friends with this guy named Easy Dog. And I'm like, okay, me and more. I am certain his name is not Easy Dog. I don't know what his name is, but it's not Easy Dog. And then I met his grandfather when we were picking our kids up. And I was like, what is your grandson's name? He's like, Isidore. I'm like, oh, right, okay, yeah. Not Easy Dog. <laughs> Not Easy Dog. Uh, Carnage writes, Luke, what are your thoughts on the court documents released on Habib's pay? Yeah, um, it was real low, but it was up until the Barboza fight. It was like 20, 20, 30, 30. Yeah, guys, they don't make much. I don't know how else to, I mean, yeah, they don't make a lot in general. Uh, personal rights. I don't care about Bud Light, but the boycott had, oh, huge consequence. It did. Yes, it did. We're talking 20 to 25 point sales decline. I understand that. It's a stupid decline, but it's a real one. I get it. I get that the, a real consequence was handed out. I can't believe that people arrange their lives in ways that are so thoughtless, but I get that it did happen. They wouldn't buy a huge UFC sponsorship if they didn't have to repair their image. Yes, I fully get that what they're paying for is that the UFC is sort of seen as, up until this anyway, sufficiently anti-woke and that like they're, they're buying it in back with an audience that they lost. I grant that there was a tremendous economic consequence. I don't deny that at all. I think it's 
fucking stupid, but okay. There, a one did exist. Uh, and that this is a way to get them back in. Because when Dana's, Dana's going out there and be like, you know, these are values I care about, dude. They, they, I mean, they must have had Bud Light over a barrel. Because all that language in the press release gets approved ahead of time. So, like, they went back and forth on the language about what these press releases were going to say. In order to get that, dude, that deal must have been significant. Significant. So, good for UFC, dude. They got a big-ass chunk. Fighters don't get a, a piece of it, but UFC got a fat check for that one. Do you ever see a scenario where they finally figure out a way to put a stop to illegal streaming? Not anytime soon, unless they're able to reform the... Um, is it DMCA laws? Or DCMA laws? Um, if they're able to reform some of the laws around copyright, that at scale could have an effect. But short of... Um, real draconian copyright laws being passed? Probably not. Oh, yeah, here we go. I definitely thought Francis could win and that it would be a good fight. Thanks for your work, genuinely. All right, well, if you did, great. But the vast majority of donks are just like me. Uh, Reed says, Extreme Couture is having an incredible run similar to when City Kickboxing took over. In your opinion, what are three gyms to look out for that could be the next monster gym? We're not really like where we used to be, where it used to be all of like those these monster gyms that would kind of rotate. Now you're seeing much more like what I would call like mid-major gyms, you know? Um, guy, gyms that aren't like American Top Team or AKA or Jackson's used to be a huge gym. You know, they're not quite the same as they once were, but you know, some of these like AKA, ATT gyms, they're really huge. Uh, I would say, you know, Factory X has a couple of young guys who look like they're really starting to move through the rankings a little bit, and Gutierrez and Martinez. I'd and more than that, I'd keep an eye on them. New England Cartel is one of these kind of groups that you never really want to look past. Some of their guys that you know of, like uh, Font and Cater, have kind of been tested against the best, and, you know, they've performed ably, but not quite championship level, and so you wonder what's left, but they're going to recruit more. Um, I'm trying to think. Dude, there's all kinds of like little gyms, you know. Obviously, dude, you cannot look past Fortis MMA. Fortis MMA is just just by virtue of how many people they have on roster, like, and you know how good their coaching is, they're going to be able to do it. Dude, other gyms in in Vegas, Syndicate and whatnot. So, you know, there's going to be there's going to be. I think the days of like the super gym are kind of over. There are a couple of those, you know, or I should say a few of those left. But I think these mid major ones where you're getting guys where it's a smaller team. And you get really good coaching, but you get much more attention. And everyone kind of knows best practices now in a way where they didn't fully know what was best practices before. And so it has empowered the smaller gym, smaller mid-major gym, to really be able to compete. Reed asks, not to ask a stupid question, but if we have to, if we have replay and can see illegal elbows like the Fury fight and Cage hair grabs in MMA, why not add a rule where ref can retroactively take a point at the end of the round? I don't know. I don't know. I couldn't, couldn't agree with you more. I have no clue. It's a great question. I don't know. I've said you need two referees. You need an A referee and a B referee. And they should have different responsibilities. The A referee would be a bigger role than the B referee. But the B referee would have certain roles. One of them would be to the extent that the A referee missed a clear foul that with the aid of technology, the B referee could see and then could then tell the A referee between rounds it would enable them to have better officiating. Dude, they don't want to take a point with fouls they do see. I mean, let's just start there. They don't want to take a, a point from fouls they catch red-handed. They, they don't even care about that. Like, there's a real 
Like what is really underpinning them is not to do the job the most accurately. Their job is they want to get in like a jewelry thief, right? They want to get in mission impossible, lightly touch everything, get what they need and then be gone and no one ever detected them. That's what they feel like the role of refing is. And I don't feel like it's that. Yes, there can be a case where the ref is too involved and too much part of a show and it's too big. Okay, I understand that. I don't think we're anywhere close to that. And that, ladies and gentlemen, I think does it. So thank you guys so much for watching. MK tomorrow, 11 a.m. We're going to break down everything in detail, everything, everything, everything about this Francis situation, about the lawsuit, about these new contracts that are basically not eliminating sunset clauses but undermining them. We have so much to get to on tomorrow's MK. This will go up on podcast tonight, and I'm out of here for now. Thank you guys so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Until next time, stay frosty. Bump, bada, bump, 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 bump. Boop.